It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, L. Joy Williams. And joining us at the front of the class is Congressman Ro Khanna, who is the representative of California's 17th Congressional District. And before he was elected to Congress, he served in the previous presidential, well, not the previous, the Obama administration. I keep forgetting to just skip over <laughs> that last administration. He's a lawyer, of course, so he's also worked in the private sector and has also taught, let's see, law, taught economics at a number of universities. So he's no stranger to being in the front of the classroom. And he describes himself as a progressive capitalist, which we're going to talk about a little later. And his latest book is one of the reasons why I wanted to have a conversation with him on the show today is Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us, which tackles the inequalities in digital revolution. So I want to welcome to the front of the class for the first time, Congressman Rokana. Welcome, Congressman. Well, I'm really honored to be on. Uh, and I try to sometimes skip the previous administration as well. So uh, I think that is a common uh, sentiment. Well, thank you so very much for being with us. I, I want to start where we ask all of our guests to start by you sharing the story of your first civic action. Well, I was in uh, ninth grade and we had a teacher, uh, Mrs. Uh, Rob at Holland Junior High School. And she said, uh, you have to get published uh, sometime before the end of the year. That was a challenge or an assignment to students. And so I uh, wrote a uh, draft op-ed letter to the editor about my feelings on the first Iraq war. And uh, the Bucks County Courier Times uh, actually ended up publishing it. And they had the headline, uh, read this 14-year-old's lips, George. Uh, uh, playing on uh, George Bush Sr.'s uh, Read My Lips uh, pledge. And so I uh, was so shocked that, uh, you know, someone could get a letter to the editor or uh, inspired me to say, okay, you know, you can have your voice heard even as a person in junior high. Of course, now young people are doing far more. They're going viral and they're on TikTok and they're organizing things. Uh, but uh, when I was growing up, just having a letter in the local paper was a big deal. I, I love that story because we've talked about on the show the number of different ways people can enter their voice into political conversation, whether that's talking directly to their elected officials, you know, going to their office, letters to the editor. And I have a saying on the show that how can someone represent you if they don't hear from you? And one of the ways that you can do that is not only talking to them directly, but letters to the editor, you know, op-eds and things of that nature to really get the voice heard. So I love that story. And maybe it'll inspire some more folks to write some letters to the editor <laughs> on different topics as well, even if you are, you know, not a voting age, because just because you're not a voting age doesn't mean you can't get your voice heard. So right. I definitely love that story. Well, I think one of the interesting things is how much 
writing matters. I would argue two of the greatest Americans, uh, Frederick Douglass and, and Dr. King, I mean, they weren't ever elected to anything, certainly greater than anyone who served in elective office, with maybe the exception of Abraham Lincoln, but they uh, had an impact by uh, writing and by giving speeches and, and inspiring millions of people. And today I still read their writing because it's so influential. So I think this idea that obviously I'm very passionate about politics and the electoral system, but the idea that you have to be part of that to have an impact, I think is not right. In fact, some of the people have the greatest impact are outside the system. Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to shift to, before we talk about your book and talking about the digital divide that we have, but also how it impacts our politics and our society and our economy overall. I wanted to talk about this descriptor that you use for your politics, which is progressive capitalist. And I'm going to start first with for you to define, because I think a lot of times people think that certain descriptors are set in time and they are set in stone. Can you sort of define what progressive in this current landscape means? If someone is identifying themselves as progressive, candidates coming before them, you know, seeking vote or evaluating different people and uh, determining their politics, what does progressive mean to you? That's a profound, deep question. Sometimes the simple questions are the hardest, but I guess for me, it means a commitment to, uh, to economic justice and, uh, uh, a racial justice and, and human rights. So on economic justice, I think it means recognizing that we've had an economy where wealth has been piling up in places like my district, but a lot of uh, people have not participated in that economy. And what are policies that will fix that? Uh, on racial justice, I think it means a commitment at the very least to uh, uh, voting rights and uh, dealing with uh, police violence, but more than that, also the racial wealth gap. And on foreign policy, I think it means a, a commitment to not getting into uh, endless wars and, and to having a foreign policy that considers the human rights of, uh, of people, such as the suffering right now in Afghanistan, because we are not releasing uh, the economic aid to them. I think that is a very, you know, we had a whole show <laughs> on this before, and I think you've given the most succinct descriptor of progressive politics, at least in the current landscape. Obviously, there's a whole history leading up to this point, but I think you've given the most succinct answer that is easy for people to understand, easy for them to grasp, and also easy for an uh, individual person to be able to evaluate candidates that come before them, whether they be congressional candidates or even local candidates, on what values or what issues define someone as being progressive. And I particularly like the addition of the foreign policy ad because we get obviously um, selfish <laughs> in talking about the things that matter to us in our everyday, our economy, racial impacts, you know, education and things of that nature, but also don't think about how that politics also translates overseas and how we deal with other countries, how we deal with issues of other humans in other particular places and how we define our American foreign policy. Can you spend a little bit more time talking about that? Because I don't think most people 
grasp the foreign policy aspect. We only think about the domestic policy. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, of course, my formulation, because you put me on the spot, was highly derivative of uh, of thinker far greater than me, and that was Dr. King, who talked about economic justice, racial justice, and against militarism. And this was key to uh, his movement in, in civil rights and against the Vietnam War. Of course, my interest in human rights comes from my grandfather, uh, Amarnath Vidyalankar, uh, who spent four years in jail, including two in the 1940s alongside Gandhi as part of India's independence movement. And that's in part what inspired uh, my public service. And I saw the impact that uh, politics has on uh, on people's lives. And of course, as the most powerful country in the world, we need to think about how when America sneezes, that often impacts millions of lives across the world. And we have a moral obligation uh, to act in a way uh, that lives up to our ideals, which believes in the dignity of every human life, not just the dignity of every American life. That's clear right now in the current context with Putin's uh, barbarism and war crimes in Ukraine. But other stories, unfortunately, don't get as much attention. I mean, there's been the largest humanitarian catastrophe in the world in Yemen, uh, where millions are, are at the risk of famine, where you've had Saudi's brutal bombing there. And it's been something I've been passionate on and working on since I got to Congress. There's been some progress with a ceasefire, uh, but that doesn't get nearly the attention I think it should. Uh, in the conversation in, in politics uh, today. And and obviously another recent example or today examples in the South Sudan in countries, you know, newest country, right, that is experiencing some of some tragedies and loss of life as well. So, you know, the capitalist part of the progressive capitalists, I imagine gets you a lot of, <laughs> gets you a lot of challenge. There is a particular <laughs> movement that is strictly anti-capitalist. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, people's resistance to, let's say, other forms of thought is that we've been raised in a capitalist society, right? And so we only know one particular way and the information or the propaganda and other things of other different types of systems is negative. But at the same time, I'm very clear that we're in a different capitalist society. And maybe you agree that there's a difference between predatory capitalism and as you would describe yourself as a progressive capitalist. So give us a little bit of take on the progressive capitalist you describe. Absolutely. Uh so I believe in free enterprise. And the reason I believe in free enterprise is that you want people to have the freedom to start businesses, uh, to be artists, to be writers, uh, to do things uh, that don't require a collective approval of government. I think that is a healthy uh, thing for a society and it leads to the, the building of wealth and the creation of products and, uh, and, and, and prosperity and advancement in, in science and medicine advances in, in climate. So much of that comes from private sector innovation. But the problem with capitalism is partly what you say. There are times of just excess and predatory practices, price gouging or the lack of competition or structuring the economy in a way that the gains are going to the very few and not to a lot of the workers. But there's also a problem of inclusion. Uh, too many people have been excluded 
from the modern economy's engines of wealth generation. They've been excluded because they didn't get basic health care. They've been excluded because they didn't have the appropriate uh, chances of education. You know, it's, uh, uh, they've been excluded because they don't have basic income and capital. It is a luxury in some ways to be able to dream and take risk, right? I mean, you have to have the basics to be able to do that. And a lot of people haven't uh, been included because of that. And then they've been ex excluded uh, because of race or gender. And so when I say progressive capitalism, I say give people the investment and in education, health, the basics, and make it inclusive. So everyone gets an opportunity to participate in this engine of modern wealth generation. Yeah. You know, one of the, I'm a history nerd, <laughs> as I think a, a lot of us in politics are. And I, I know that from reading from different writings, that a number of people who are staunch capitalists would argue that the era in which we had great advancement we know was also, you know, a lot of people being taken advantage of talking about the area where we pushed through and, you know, built railroads, but subway systems and the industrial revolution overall, there's a lot of exploitation, but also a lot of innovation, right? And so there is often this argument that oh, you need a little bit of exploitation in order to get great innovation. And we're now in this part of technology talking about the digital age where people are being exploited. And there are some countries like ours that have stronger protections, but certainly more than other countries and other smaller countries. But they argue that, you know, in order to get the great advancement, you know, you need a little bit of exploitation. I argue differently, but um, I wanted to get your your take that people believe we can't sort of burst out, have another industrial revolution push forward without, you know, the releasing of regulations and making sure everyone is included. Well, I categorically reject that view because I think our North Star has to be ultimately more than productivity growth or GDP growth. And even if it meant that we'd have slightly less uh, exponential growth, uh, but we get to honor the dignity and rights of every human being, I would say the dignity and rights of every human being uh, are uh, more important. I mean, nowhere in the Constitution does it say uh, we have to have uh, incredible GDP growth every year. It says we have to recognize everyone's human rights and basic rights. Uh, that said, I think there is this extraordinary opportunity, which is that we have this incredible wealth generation in the digital age, and that the aims of wealth generation and justice may coincide in ways that uh, uh, haven't before because we're producing so much wealth. I mean, $11 trillion of market cap in my district and surrounding areas, Apple, Google, Intel, Yahoo, Cisco, LinkedIn, Tesla. And why is it that we can't pay a living wage then to, to workers? Why is it that in Germany or Switzerland you get 25 bucks working in McDonald's, but we can't create that high wage economy here, not just for those in tech and manufacturing, but in service jobs? That's a, that's a decision we've made, a wrong decision. We don't have enough collective bargaining. We don't have sectoral bargaining. We don't have wage boards that are lifting up the incomes of service uh, workers, and we've not invested enough in production and wealth generation in every part of the country to have high wage jobs. So I would argue 
that you don't need uh, exploitation to have a strong economy, uh, and that actually bringing up people uh, is something that we can do, given all the wealth we've generated. We're just choosing not to do it. I agree that it, it, it's a choice that we make to not do that. And I'm a big believer. I'm a church girl. So I'm a big believer in naming the devil, right. And saying, putting it explicit to people of what are the reasons, what are, who are the stop gaps? What are the things that are preventing us from getting to that reality? So I'm going to ask you, what is standing in the way of us being able to reach that, to be able to have people earn a living wage, to be able to take care of their families, to grow and progress, and, and who is standing in the way of that progress? Let me say three things. First, we got policy wrong in this country for the last 40 years, where we said to folks, just go move to the jobs. Uh, it doesn't matter if uh, there are no jobs and offshoring and deindustrialization in your community, you can just go move. Well, that was offensive. It led to a lot of jobs, manufacturing other jobs, leaving, leaving the South, the Black South at first, which William Julius Wilson and others wrote about, and then leaving the Midwest and leaving uh, a lot of communities in, in, in rural America, and nothing came uh, in its place. The second, I think, problem uh, has been that we uh, have not had enough collective bargaining, enough of a, a right to, to bargain and, uh, and, and stand up for workers. And so the pay of the top management has kept going up and uh, the pay of working class uh, folks who are contributing hasn't kept up. We haven't increased the minimum wage. We haven't increased uh, bargaining rights. Uh, we have union membership has declined and there's been no sectoral bargaining to, to replace it. And the third thing is that we've made the, so much of this wealth generation exclusive and haven't really spoken to it uh, in, in communities left behind. You know, the racial wealth gap, let me just say one point on that. 10 to 1 is what it is, and it's increasing. I mean, think about that. After the civil rights movement, the racial wealth gap in this country is increasing. One of the reasons it's increasing is when you have IPOs and startups and new businesses and technology uh, in my district, how many of the venture capitalists, how, much are, how many of the founders, how many of the people getting the, the stock value are Latino or black? How many of them are women of color? Not a lot, even though many of them are using the products, popularizing the products. We have to figure out how do we provide uh, people in, uh, in communities of color with actual opportunities to generate wealth. Yes, they, they need the right to vote, that's basic. Yes, they need the right so that when they go on the street, they're not shot by a police officer, that's basic. But we can't just talk about that. What about the young folks who wanna start businesses, wanna have technology jobs, wanna make money? We've done a horrible job, in my view, of providing the opportunities for the modern American dream in a large number of communities. Stay tuned, we'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I 
Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, Eljoy Williams. And joining us at the front of the class is Congressman Ro Khanna, who is the representative of California's 17th Congressional District. So you argue some of that um, just to bring in your your new book, Dignity in the Digital Age, in talking about a number of things, one of which is how we can add, as you mentioned, regulation, policy to ensure that people not only have access, but can also thrive in this new digital age as well. One of you know the things I'm working on locally is even as states and local communities are adopting new technology in how government works, be it in police departments and government in general, is how can we ensure some of those set standards are implemented on the state and local level as well. Talk a bit about dignity in a digital age and why people should not only pick it up and read it, but sort of being able to demand and request that our not only federal government, but local governments and institutions are adopting some of these policies to increase greater access and use of digital technology. One of the great honors of my life was doing a joint op-ed with the late John Lewis. And we did it partly because of the influence of the Indian independence movement and, and, and the civil rights movement. But in that op-ed, John Lewis said something that has always struck with me. Technology rights are the new civil rights. And the point I make in the book is you have all of this wealth generation happening in, uh, in my district, $11 trillion of market cap. We're gonna have 25 million new uh, digital jobs in uh, 2025. And the question is, who's gonna have access to those jobs? How are we preparing people to have access to the jobs and the economic opportunity? And I make the case uh, in my policy work uh, and uh, in my time in Congress that we have to really uh, advance uh, and invest in getting people the credentials that are gonna get them access to these jobs and getting them access to the capital that you can't have an entire communities, rural America, black and brown communities, women excluded from these engines of modern wealth generation. And most people get that. They get where the wealth is being generated and they see that their kids or their families uh, don't have those opportunities and wanna make sure that they have those opportunities. Yeah, one of the, just thinking about the pandemic here in Brooklyn, you know, where I am and we had everybody go remote. And I'm thinking about a particular neighboring community, Brownsville, Brooklyn, New York, and where you can actually look at a map in terms of where technology access doesn't exist. And in a place like New York City, where you would think is all interconnected in Brownsville, Brooklyn, in that entire community where ultimately there had to be, you know, protests and raising voices and the mayor had to send mobile vans in order for kids to get internet access in a major metropolitan city like New York City. But in the book, you talk about some of the other communities across the country that don't have access like that in rural communities and others that really put them at a disadvantage of even participating in this new economy in that, in that way. What does the federal government need to do what should people be demanding and asking for to ensure that we have greater access across the board? Well, the t table stakes are affordable internet access. And 
here it's important to say it's not just having the actual internet access come to your home or to your community. It's making sure it's affordable. Now, this president, President Biden, has done an enormous thing on that. $65 billion that Congress passed that now will be with the Commerce Department at the FCC to get everyone uh, both uh, the development of internet, high-speed internet to their homes, but also to help working-class Americans and and poor Americans with making sure that that's affordable. And the F FCC will have a program on that. That is uh, $65 billion, the largest investment we've we've made on that. But that's just table stakes. I mean, it's, it's not enough to say, okay, now we're connected to the high-speed internet. Though all of us were just shocked and horrified when we had to hear stories of students going out into uh, McDonald's parking lots to get Wi-Fi. Fine, let's fix that problem. Then the question is, how are we going to get people the actual credentials uh, to get these jobs? How are we going to make sure that they have these jobs? And one of the important things is these aren't all coding jobs. This has been one of the big myths that somehow everyone has to go become a coder at Google. These that was going to be my next question of like, yeah. what, when you say credentials, like what jobs are you talking about? These are the new manufacturing jobs. You know, these are the new retail jobs. These are the new jobs in sales. These are the new jobs in... Uh, in, in entertainment and journalism, look at the conversation we're having and how much technology is involved in that. Uh, you know, I, I, I talk, I've, I've met people as I've uh, traveled who are uh, doing the next generation of manufacturing, but you have to understand te some technology to be able to do that. Uh, you have to understand some technology to, to have a small business that can uh, advertise online and have a, a, a sales online. And maybe you can now sell not just to your own community, but to, to the entire nation or world. The, the, the reality is that as technology has advanced, the, in Silicon Valley, they have this new saying. It's called a no code or low code, meaning most of these new jobs, good technology doesn't require a, a lot of coding anymore. The way I think about this is think about your car. You know, my father could do everything to fix a car. He knew everything. I, you know, I don't have nearly his competence, but the cars have advanced so much that you, you don't need to know as much in terms of looking under the hood anymore on cars because the technology is advanced. The same thing is happening in the IT sphere. The tech has advanced so much that you can, with six months, get a credential on how do you design a website or how do I understand this technology for manufacturing or what do I need to do to understand uh, how businesses can use this technology. And that gives you access to a 60, 70, $80,000 job. One of the things that is sad to me is as, as I've gone to uh, community colleges, as I've gone to some of the HBCUs and HSIs and travel the country is that there isn't this collaboration with the private sector uh, to actually get the credential that's gonna lead to a job. You know, one of the students I met, uh, a dean, and I won't mention the actual HBCU, it was embarrassing. He was sending 4.0 students uh, to, to, to these, these companies in Silicon Valley and that they weren't getting hired. Now, part of it is, I'm sure, an issue of racism and uh, in terms of implicit bias. But part of it was that they just never had done a whiteboard interview and there wasn't exposed to some of, there was a cultural disconnect. So we need to make sure that we are actually having the employers work with our land-grant universities or community colleges, getting people a credential, won't always be a four-year degree, and telling them these jobs are in all the different industries of the future and they're high-paying jobs.
So lastly, before I let you go, there's also what we need to do in terms of public and private partnership, but there is also holding these companies accountable for what they're creating and how these platforms and other things are being used. What should we be demanding or what should local and federal government, the federal government be demanding of these companies and what they need to contribute to this progress as well? Well, I've called for an Internet Bill of Rights that Speaker Pelosi had me draft. And let me tell you two parts of that Internet Bill of Rights. First, every person ought to have an inalienable right to their data. We shouldn't be having the ability of these companies to suck your data from you and then use that data to manipulate your kids or to uh, help uh, a political candidate like Donald Trump win for office, which happened with Cambridge Analytica, or to use that data uh, to target people and see the rise of QAnon. People should have the right to their own data. It shouldn't be stripped from them. I liken it to if you go into a store and you're shopping and then you come out, imagine if there was an X-ray, they got all of your information. People would be outraged. Well, why is it okay then when you go online that they can just strip all your data and people don't have a problem with that? They do, and, and, and that should be stopped. The second thing is that there has to be some standards online. You know, people keep saying speech, speech, speech. Well, fine, there, yes, speech, but you can't incite violence as has been going on in, uh, on social media without consequences. When you have speech, there has to be an equality of speech. You can't have speech which is blatantly racist and sexist so that some people feel uneasy participating. How is that creating a public sphere? When I have a town hall, uh, if someone were to start yelling uh, racist or sexist epithets, or even uh, you know yelling uh, and 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 making it uncomfortable for other people to speak, they would they wouldn't be able to participate. So we need to make sure that these public spheres of digital public spheres are places of of respect. That doesn't mean you don't have a lot of viewpoints, but you can't have a, these spheres be the toxic places in some that they have have become. Those are two of the the principles that I'm working towards in Congress. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see? Your life was the only gift I left me to be free. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams. And at the front of the class is the congressman from California's 17th District, Representative Ro Khanna. Thank you so much again for being in dialogue with us. I really appreciate it. So I want to switch gears for you to share with us. You just went to Chicago for some conversations with United Steelworkers. Can you talk to us a bit about that? I had a great meeting yesterday uh, with United Steelworkers. Here's what was so concerning. They said when they were growing up in the 80s and early 90s, that they actually had more good jobs, more opportunities. And then of course, uh, US Steel in the Southworks closed. Uh, so many steel plants in uh, Gary, Indiana uh, were downsized. Uh, and now they feel that there are actually less jobs, less good opportunities uh, for young people uh, in uh, Chicago, uh, and uh, particularly for uh, the African-American community. 
And one of the things that someone said to me struck me. He said, you know, uh, we need to have new production, new innovation, um, making things uh, across America and, and real economic revitalization. And it's got to be fast and it's got to be innovative and we're going to be producing things. Uh, and that he thought was not happening at a fast enough pace. Yeah, you know, it's similar to, I mean, Chicago is not the only place, right? My mother is from, or when she was younger, was in Youngstown, Ohio. And in places like Youngstown, there are towns in Pennsylvania, Illinois, and others, which used to be booming communities. There were booming communities in some of these small towns or mid towns where people were able to live middle class, working class lifestyles. They had jobs that paid a living wage. They had union representation. They were able to really invest in the economy and build up those communities. And now we can see the physical effects of that, right, where those towns have lost those that economic engine and what that does to a community overall and then what it does to the economy not only in the local area and the state but federally how do we how do you know we're in a recovery mode particularly post covid how do we spur that innovation how do we create that atmosphere to build up towns like that and provide more employment opportunities for people across the country well, first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, what happened is people used to have 25, 30 buck jobs. They used to be guaranteed a pension. There used to be a career. Uh, and a lot of that, we shipped it offshore. We shipped uh, millions of jobs to China, millions of jobs south of the border. We basically let production leave uh, America. And in the process, a lot of towns shuttered. Uh, communities uh, have been deindustrialized. Uh, now young people have less in certain places job opportunities than they did uh, growing up in the 80s and 90s. And so we need to commit, especially now after COVID, where we see our vulnerability to uh, global supply chains, where we see our vulnerability with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, we've got to commit to rebuilding uh, our industrial capacity in America. That means doing the next generation of manufacturing, the gigafactories that Elon Musk talks about to make batteries. I mean, that all should be done in massive scale in the United States. It could, could put uh, people to work and, and have careers. We ought to be making uh, the clean steel here, the thick steel that we're going to need for offshore wind. We need solar farms, wind farms. We need uh, to make nails in this country again. We don't make nails. We need so many things, masks. There's so many things, paper that we used to make that we're not making uh, and uh, that we can make. And the federal government can have a big role. We can help finance these new plants. We can help uh, purchase uh, materials from uh, these plants. We can help uh, create the workforce. Uh, so this ought to be, in my view, the, our, our principal mission is sort of the economic revitalization of production in America. So I can already foresee the arguments, right, that um, will come from folks, right, is the reason why we can do steel cheaper by doing it overseas is because, you know, it costs less to get it overseas and even the cost of shipping it, you know, it ends up working out, right? And I, you know, I think that's really because we bank on or companies bank on the exploitation that is allowed in other countries that, co that companies that are based here are allowed to engage in an exploitation economy in other parts of the world to bring goods here to the United States. Now, how do we get over that, 
right? Because yes, we can build a factory and, you know, for us to build, for us to make nails, to make the steel, things of that nature. But then how do we, you know, it, it will go from a $5 an hour or, you know, $2 an hour job overseas to now you have to provide benefits and, you know, maybe $15, $20 an hour. How, how do we get over, what does the federal government need to do to get over that hump? It's a really thoughtful question. A couple of things. First, when we're doing the next generation of innovation manufacturing and clean batteries and electric vehicles uh, in semiconductors, a lot of that we have a unique advantage to do here. And uh, it's not the uh, traditional manufacturing. So we can be more productive. We can be more innovative. And the federal government can uh, partner with the private sector to create the next generation of production, the fixed seal, things that are hard to make that Americans can innovate on. Second, uh, we, we ought to have a tax on uh, shipping things offshore to sell back into the United States. Look, if you want to move production to China or Brazil because you want to sell things into China or Brazil, fine. I mean, that's the global market. But you shouldn't be able to move your production to Mexico, China, Brazil to then ship those products back into the United States to take advantage of cheaper labor and lax environmental standards and lax carbon standards. There ought to be a tax for shipping offshore to then produce and sell back into the United States, and that would level the playing field. And third, our government needs to assist our manufacturers. Every other country, they have their governments helping set up the capital financing of these plants. The reality is we just thought it didn't matter. We said, okay, who cares? You know, jobs are going offshore. It's a global market. And we literally destroyed a lot of the middle class. I mean, the saddest thing that I uh, heard yesterday from people like Justin and uh, Javon and others who were working in these steel plants is they literally said they felt more optimistic about the economy in the 1980s and 1990s than they feel today. And I think that's what explains the fact that we have 3.6% unemployment, but people aren't happy about the economy. Part of it is inflation. Part of it is there's an economic anxiety. You know what? It's not. I love the infrastructure bill. I was proud to support it. But it's not just about building roads and bridges. That's not going to create the good paying long term careers. We've got to revitalize the economic production in America. So let's connect that to the conversation that we had earlier regarding your book, right? That there is, yes, there is this investment that's needed in infrastructure, in manufacturing, you know, basically a, new, a modern version of the Industrial Revolution, if you will, to revitalize our economy. But there is also new innovation. There is the tech boom as well that continues to move on that is moving on, leaving a lot of folks behind. And I'll give you an example. Here locally in Brooklyn, where we have, you know, high unemployment regard for those who of our African descent. And there is this disconnect where people are making, you know, $90,000, $110,000 a year in tech jobs. And then you have people that may have a bachelor's degree or may not, right? You have this you know, bulk of people who, if given the opportunity or know about those tech industries that you just need a certificate that's free to get or, you know, resources or whatever in order to move you into that job. There's there's this gap, huge gap of people who are not aware, right, of how they can enter that technology space, that industrial space. How do we get, how do we get or close that gap as well? 
We have to, or you're never going to overcome the racial wealth gap in this country if you don't overcome the racial wealth generation gap. And most people know that so much of the wealth that's been generated has been in technology. The market cap of my district is $11 trillion. Apple, Google, Intel, Yahoo, Cisco. To put that in context, Russia's entire GDP is $1.6 trillion. So what can we do concretely? Well, first, we've got to demystify these 25 million digital jobs. They don't require a lot of math. They don't require complex programming. Technology has become a lot simpler. It is about designing things. It is about making things on technology. It's about uh, understanding how to use data and how to solve business needs. And uh, we can set up these programs. I have. Uh, we did Zoom's program with Claflin, where basically young folks get a 12 months, 18 month uh, credential uh, in uh, take a 10 hour a week course. And at the end of it, they end up with a $65,000, $75,000 job. Google is doing this with other HBCUs, uh, and they're actually paying a $5,000 stipend for people to do it. So a few points. You don't need a college degree. You don't need a lot of math. You don't have to be an expert programmer. Th these technology jobs are going to be in retail, in manufacturing, in entertainment. Uh, and we've got to just make much more accessibility in partnering with the private sector to get people the credentials and, and the job opportunities. Yeah. So back to because I, I do see a connection between not only in the text in the tech space, but in terms of the manufacturing space. Right. There's, you know, selling widgets, selling on, you know, selling things online. But there's also, as you mentioned, you know, the the opportunities for employment in the tech space and the the complete variation of that, right? Not just coding, but there are so many other things that are related to that. I mean, where is the vision besides yourself? <laughs> where is the vision to really push this forward as, you know, those of us who are students of history know that there were big pushes by the federal government, whether it's after the depression, tackling poverty, right? It required sort of this big vision. We're going to go all in to revitalize the country following, you know, huge depressive economic and also social instances that the country has experienced. It doesn't seem, I mean, I, I think we're kind of like patching holes right now, right? Exactly. Like something happens, we patch a hole here, we do an infrastructure bill over here, we patch this and we do ACA over here, right? Like it seems like patchwork. It doesn't seem like this, okay, like let's have a moment, let's bring all the country together in the living room and be like, this is what we need to do. We got to go big, bold, <laughs> you know, to really bring everybody up. Like where, where is that? And who is that person? And can I elect them to something? <laughs> well, it, and it's going to be a mission. I think it's right. I mean, it can't be just like, okay, here are a bunch of politicians and they're going to spend money, trillion dollars on infrastructure. Fine, good. It's got to be, how do we revitalize the American engine, the economic engine, and include people who haven't participated in wealth generation. Basically, half the country has made a ton of money, half the regions, and half the country has faced deindustrialization and a decline of opportunity, and they think that their kids' lives are going to be worse than their lives. And we could say, look, this is going to take government, it's going to take business, it's going to take educational leaders, it's going to take clergy, it's going to take community leaders. Let's collectively uh, rebuild the economy, the production of this country in advanced manufacturing, the new technology jobs that are going to be everywhere. And let's get people the credentials and the jobs they need and work as that mission is one America. 
I, I think we can do this. Bobby Kennedy famously did it in Brooklyn with the Bedford-Stuyvesant Project in 1964, where he brought community business leaders together to, to revitalize that part. Uh, and I, I think that this is something that can uh, bring people together and inspire folks to, uh, to, to, to really have economic opportunity. And people, you know, young people get it. One of the things that people uh, always ask me is, why is it that there's so many young uh, black and Latino men and women who are investing in cryptocurrency. And I said, it's partly because they don't want to be left out of the next platform of wealth generation. And they want to, they understand that these top 10 cryptocurrencies may be a new platform. But my view is we can't just say that that's the only opportunity to build wealth in a modern economy is if you're buying cryptocurrency. We've got to give people who have been left out of modern economic wealth generation, the economic opportunities uh, in the 21st century. And I, I think that's a unifying message. Certainly does. But it also requires us to, you know, I don't want to be naive in terms of the political landscape that we're in, right? Because all of that sounds amazing. All of it sounds exactly what we need. Whether your political ideology, at the end of the day, the issues of the economy and affect us all, <laughs> you know, no. affect people's home budgets, business budgets, it affects us all. But I don't want to be naive in terms of the political landscape that is extreme at this moment. How do we, you know, I personally believe it is a unifying message and miss, uh, mission if we can get enough of us, right, to sing in the choir about it, right? But there is the reality of the political landscape. How do you think we cut through that? Well, I don't want to minimize the political dis, dis uh, agreements and, and attack, assault on our rights. I mean, look, the Republicans want to move this country 50 years back. They're taking away voting rights. They're taking away the fundamental right of equality of women. That's what Roe versus Wade is about. It's saying women have an equal right to their bodies as men do under the 14th Amendment. It should be under the equal protection. And those are not areas where we can compromise. You, we can't compromise on fundamental rights of equality of citizens in a democracy. So there, we just have to win. We have to fight. We have to win. We have to say, you're not going to take this country back 50, 60 years. That's, we make too much progress. Too many people have sacrificed. But when it comes to economic production and jobs and making sure that China doesn't win and the jobs don't go all offshore and that we can rebuild the middle class and have economic prosperity, you know, it turns out that white working class folks in Galesburg, Illinois, have a lot of in common uh, with uh, black Americans uh, in uh, the west side or south side of Chicago, and that there has been deindustrialization that has hurt Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Dayton, Ohio, as much as it has hurt uh, towns in uh, rural Pennsylvania. And so a vision that says we're going to bring new economic opportunity and production and we want to win against China and that we want to make sure we're prospering. That is one message that can cut across some of the divisions. I'm not saying that it can replace the more fundamental fights for voting rights, for equal dignity. Uh, obviously, we have to stand tall on that. But at the same time, we can build a coalitions on these economic issues. I, I do, you know, and just on the show, we've talked about that kind of coalition building that has happened. A lot of unions have done that in, in you know, individual states and communities. Famously, we know the story of Fred Hampton and 
organizing white working class folks with black working class folks. And, you know, but we also know the history of this country is just like if you sprinkle a little like you're better than them, <laughs> white supremacy on it, it becomes, you know, people can't see past that. Right. And so it, it's incumbent upon us to really challenge ourselves to look at values, to look at the needs of our communities and look past the divisions that are deliberately stoked to create this division. Meanwhile, the wealthy keep getting wealthier. And so if we don't challenge that and really focus on this mission of lifting all of us up, then it, it, it does become a challenge to move it forward and we'll continue to do patchwork, unfortunately. <laughs> well, yeah. I, any, like, I'm sorry, you didn't, you wanted to say some more on that? No, look, I, I think the best folks like Reverend Barber, right? I know you're familiar with his work in Poor People's Campaign. I mean, these are multiracial uh, coalitions to stand up for working class folks, whether they're uh, low wealth black individuals, white individuals, Latino individuals, and mobilizing on economic prosperity and bringing back production and having America lead and saying all the wealth shouldn't just be in the hands of the few in Miami, New York, Silicon Valley. I think that is something that a lot of Americans can get behind. But I also think, that, to your point, that we can't say, okay, just have economics and let that uh, obscure the fundamental issues of the right to vote, the right to equality, uh, the right to be an equal citizen in a democracy. Uh, those are the most fundamental issues where, for which people were beaten and jailed. Uh, and we have to stand tall on those and not compromise on those uh, while we work on the economic issues. Right. Well, Congressman, thanks so very much for taking the time. I see Chicago is behind you. Yeah. <laughs> and as you're traveling and trying to get everyone on board with this mission, I really appreciate it. And I actually agree with you and really believe in. So anything that we can do to continue to preach that message, please feel free to come back and let us know. Thank you. Well, you have a big platform. It was an honor to be on and I look forward to being back. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. Oh.